This week on Writers Inc. I write all my first drafts with a pencil in notebooks. I've got boxes and boxes of notebooks going back 20 plus years now. Um, something about the physicality of it, um, you know, being able to s- scratch a line out or draw an arrow down or draw an arrow up or circle something or write a note to myself. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. J.D., are you killing contractors? <laughs> oh, I didn't know we were going to go there. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I, you know, I mentioned this garage that I've got going up a couple of times. It's a two-story garage. It's like 1,200 square feet or so. I hired a company through uh, Home Depot in order to put it up. So I figured it would be a no-brainer being a, a Home Depot company. Um, but the building inspector came out here a couple of weeks ago after they finished putting the roof on and said the roof has to come off because they used the wrong kind of plywood. Um, so they had to pull the entire roof off, redo it, put it back on. Um, they're supposed to be done with this entire garage today. And the inspector came by this morning and he looked at the siding and said, um, they put the siding up with staples instead of nails. All the siding has to come down. Um, so <laughs> there, there's like four guys out there right now pulling siding off the side of this building. And they're, they're numbering each piece as they go so they can try and put it back where it, where it goes. But this has been um, a, a giant cluster F <laughs> for for what I consider to be a Home Depot company that I thought was going to be simple and, and, you know, somebody that would, would be able to knock out a garage pretty easily. Like I could have probably built this myself in less time. But, yeah, so that's going on. Yeah, now I know why I go to Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like to introduce our new sponsor, Lowe's. Uh, <laughs> I like how that you're like, they're numbering the pieces. I'm like, are you sure you didn't go to Ikea? Like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> I you just might have been I, better off going there. I just don't get it. I mean, they've got, you know, thousands of garages behind me. That that's what I was told. You know, it's so like how do they, you know, not know what type of fastener you use to put the siding up if, if that's the case. I mean, you you know that you need to use a certain type of nail, but I don't know, maybe there's some place in the country where, where staples are perfectly acceptable, but it, <laughs> it is not here on my little island in New Hampshire, that's for sure. <laughs> so in publishing news though, I kind of stumbled into something that I thought was cool. Yeah, good segue, right? Yeah, nice transition. Um, <laughs> so I, I got this this thing that popped up in my email. I'm honestly not even sure how it came up in my newsfeed, but it's a newspaper out of the UK called The Press and Journal. Um, and the headline is Aberdeen Author's New Collection of Horror Stories Vies with Stephen King Atop a Book Chart. Um, so I loaded this up and, and, and took a closer look at it. And, you know, this is a, a, a newspaper, and they, they basically wrote this up. And the, the guy is number one in the, the horror short stories. Actually, he's number two um, in the Amazon ranking for horror short stories. Uh, Stephen King is number one with the Langoliers. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is the first time in the press where I think I've ever seen a newspaper acknowledge an Amazon ranking in a subcategory, you know, like this. I mean, they're saying that the guy is, you know, in, in the, the number one, number two slot up there with, with Stephen King, but they're, they're not pointing out that it's a, a subcategory. So I guess it's it's good and bad. Um, you know, I, I like I like the fact that they're they're actually taking an Amazon 
ranking seriously. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can rank number one in basket weaving if you get your keywords right. So um, kudos to this guy for, for getting this out there, getting it to a newspaper and getting somebody to write it up because I'm sure it moves some books. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> silence silence from the peanut no, gallery. I'm just I'm, I'm it's just it's just funny like because like you said that it could be you know obviously the guy obviously they moved a lot of books but it could have been any number of things you know and it could have been for like an hour <laughs> like I don't is yeah it still that, up there I don't, I, I don't know like the, the newspaper article literally had a screenshot of the Amazon ranking you know like the same thing that you know like I've, I've captured a million of them when I hit number one and I've got a little folder where I, I store them um, but I've never seen the press actually acknowledge that. Like usually if they say number one or number two, it's, you know, the New York Times list, or in this case, it would be the um, the, the Sunday Times over in the UK. Um, but they're usually, you know, they're quoting a, a newspaper. I've never seen them quote an, an Amazon ranking um, in a, in a print, uh, printed press before. So it's an interesting turn of events. Um, but, you know, again, like, I mean, to the author, like that, that's really cool. I think that he was actually able to do that, spin it into a story, and I'm sure it sold some books for him. So... You know, just something to think about. Like you can take something as simple as an Amazon ranking in a subcategory and turn it into some real press that can probably move some move some copies for you. And, and I think too, we as authors tend to forget. Like we know what that means and what it means to hit the top of an Amazon category and to be able to say you're a bestseller. But when you say that to people who don't know, aren't in the weeds like we are, they think that's a really can think that's a really really big deal. Not that it's not. To be, you know, because that is actually a decent category, but uh, but yeah. So the uh, what I'm saying is though, like the perception of that people, he gets it in the newspaper and people are like, oh, that's a best-selling book I've never heard of. I'm gonna go check that out and probably did help him move a lot of books. Yeah, I mean, so. there's plenty. There's plenty of people that hit number one and number two in the subcategories all day long, and like you said, it could happen for an hour. Um, but you know, this is the first time I've ever seen somebody spin it into a, an actual news story that, that probably moved a lot of copies. So that, 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 that's the reason I brought it up. I just thought, you know, somehow that, that author, you know, a little light bulb went off and he said, Hey, you know, I could do this with that. And, and he got it done. So kudos. Um, yeah, I just, uh, in, in related publishing news, I wanted to let everyone know that, uh, Writers Inc. alum Evan from Story Origin just released a beta read program on their platform. Super cool. Um, I haven't done it yet, but I've looked into it, and it, it allows authors to give beta read versions to readers and collect feedback all through the Story Origin app. So uh, there's, a, there's a post. He kind of wrote it up. I'll have a link in the show notes. Definitely check it out. Uh, it's a great way to streamline beta readers and aggregate feedback without just resorting to you know, the, the usual email method. So definitely check that out. Nice. Cool. Um, something else I noticed this week, Amazon rolled out performance-based advertising. Um, I haven't tried it yet, and I haven't dug into it, um, but it, it looks it looks like it could be promising. I mean, you can basically take a benchmark, like if you hit a certain uh, click-through ratio or a conversion ratio, you can cause your, your budget to actually move up, um, which which could be useful if you can figure out how to, to, to work that. So I'm, I'm going to check it out this weekend and play with it a little bit. Yeah, I think it's great that Amazon is continually tweaking their ad platform to suck as much money out of the people <laughs> running the ads as possible. It's great. Yeah. Hey, if they're working though, uh, let's play go on the other side. If you have an ad that's working and is getting a return, it is nice to be able to like that seems like kind of a hands off approach for you to be able to increase the traffic on that ad and hopefully make more money. 
So. Yeah, I, I know personally. I go into my ads every every Thursday. I've got a little reminder on my computer, uh, twelve thirty. I just I look at all my Amazon ads and I adjust budgets based on their performance. So it sounds like this might be some way for me to automate that process a little bit and, and save some time. Um, and also, every once in a while, I'll get the email at like ten o'clock at night saying, "Hey, this ad is about to run out of you know whatever the budget is," um, and it, it encourages you to to increase it. Which um, you know I guess it's coming from a particular place over at Amazon. I get why they want you to increase your budget, but you know at least this way you can you know if, if there's a legitimate reason for it, you might be able to automate some of that process. Yes. Now every Thursday at twelve thirty, I'm just gonna start sending you text messages. <laughs> Check your ads. What are you Check doing, Jay? What are you doing right now? Check your ads. <laughs> I'm going to send him one at 1240 that says stop checking your ads and get your words done. <laughs> you people are brutal. I don't even know why I talk to you guys anymore. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> All right, well, let's take care of some business and get to uh, get to our guests who we really want to talk to. Uh, as always, get, let's give a shout-out to Cobra Reading Life, our wonderful sponsors who empower you, the self-publishing author, to take advantage of all their promotional opportunities, all without exclusivity. So if you're interested in uh, multiple international rights, promotions, uh, and and price settings, then Kobo Writing Life is the place for you. And remember, it's a book-by-book -book decision. So if you want to experiment, if you're not wide yet, definitely check out Kobo Writing Life. That's at KoboWritingLife.com. And if you want to become a patron of the podcast and get to submit your questions for the monthly Q&A episode, which we have coming up pretty soon, you can go to patreon.com slash writersincpodcast. And that brings us to the guest. And today we have JD. Eric Rickstad. Um, so this one's going to be fun. So this is somebody I've known for, for a little while. He lives um, up in, in Vermont, um, a very cool place in the, uh, part of the country. Um, New England in general is just very inspirational when it comes to writing. I, I found that after moving up here. But Vermont is, is gorgeous and a lot of history around there. Um, he's a New York Times bestseller, and we touched on this last week. He recently changed agents. He's changed publishers. Um, he's kind of changed his model of his books. He's, he's you know, moved away a little bit from the, the thrillers that he, he used to write uh, to something you know different. Um, I recently read it. Uh, it's called I'm Not Who You Think I Am. It releases, I believe, at the end of the year. Um, fantastic book, though, and I can't wait to talk to this guy. Here he is, Eric Rickstad. This is this is kind of a this kind of came together last minute, and I'm really but I'm really excited to talk to you because JD's been telling me a little bit about you. But what he didn't say is that um, that you have a, a side hustle as a Brett Favre impersonator. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you you got I you, have, you got a young Brett Favre look going on there. It's kind of. Well, cool. I'm glad it's a young one. That <laughs> 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 uh, I had someone say that at a um, an airport once. Is that right? Yeah, which I had not heard before. Uh, when I was a little younger, I I would get uh, actually of all people Jim Carrey. Oh, I, I had better see that. I had better cheekbones then. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I, I was teeing it up for you because I thought yeah. what you were going to say was, I am not who you think I am. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe we can edit that in, right? <laughs> well, this, this is pretty cool. You got a new book come out um, October 5th. So depending on when you're listening to this, uh, mark your calendars or uh, you know, we'll have a link in the show notes either way. But um, tell us about this book. And, and uh, I know it's a, a bit of a departure from some of the other things you've done. Yeah, it's a standalone, and uh, it's it's. I've always had a, you know, a, a thread of the gothic in my novels and and atmosphere and and uh, you know, 
some influence by, you know, Carlos Ruiz Zafon and um, Donna Tart and Poe and Jackson and sort of these, this Gothic, this Gothic um, take that I like, but this one, I really upped the ante and, um, and it, you know, so far the response has been, you know, that, that it worked. Um, it's, uh, it's a Gothic novel and it's set um, primarily in the eighties. Um, it's about a young kid who comes home early from school to discover his father um, committing suicide. Uh, but a few years later, he has something happen to him where he thinks this, this probably wasn't even my father. And at the time he finds a note that says, I am not who you think I am uh, at the feet of his father. And he doesn't share it with anyone. And his mother instantly starts acting very strange. Um, within days, she rids the house of every sign that his father even existed, let alone lived in the house. Um, and so when he turns, becomes a teenager and realizes something is not right about this day, something is not right about what happened, something's not right about this note. I don't know if it was even him. And if it wasn't him, then where is he? And if it was him that wrote this note, what did it? what did it mean? I am not who you think I am. And he starts pursuing that mystery and that investigation brings in a couple friends of his, his, his only friend, Clay and, and a girl with whom he's smitten, uh, Juliet. And they, they start to uh, pursue this, this mystery. Um, but as he goes along, he discovers some very, very dark things about his mother, about the town uh, and begins to, you know, not trust anyone. Um, it's written in a framework, though, that uh, you're reading basically a manuscript of this boy written in present time. And he sent it to this, his town's police department in, in present day. And it starts with the police letter saying, we received this manuscript, we vetted it to find out what was true and what was not. And there was an evening where there was a mansion that was on fire uh, and burned to the ground in this, what the town is known as this night of mayhem and madness and murder and suicide. And he was supposed to have died in that fire and everyone believed he did. Uh, so the manuscript, what you're reading the book is the manuscript of this now adult man saying, you thought I died in this fire. I didn't. You thought this is what happened that night. It didn't because I was there. And I'm about to tell you what really happened. Awesome. And uh, I'm glad you didn't spoil because uh, we scheduled this interview just literally like 48 hours ago and, and I haven't read it yet. So I, I can't wait to, to dive in. I'm glad you didn't spoil anything. Uh, I, I saw that, you know, the tagline is one secret, eight cryptic words, lifetimes of ruin. Uh, is that something you came up with? Is that something the, the publisher wrote for you? Where'd that come from? That's something I came up with. And that's probably how I should have just summed it up right, right now. You know, I'm terrible. <laughs> you know, it's about, it's about, uh, you know, one secret, eight cryptic words. I am not who you think I am that lead to lifetimes of ruin. And really the, the, you know, the underlying theme of the book is, are we better off living with lies that make life livable and easier to live? Or are we better off living with the truth that might make life unbearable to live or, or impossible to live. And that's really what this kid, uh, you know, faces in, in this book, the, the dig, the further he 
deeper he digs, uh, the darker things get. Um, and the more confused he gets, the more um, violent things become and the more gothic things become. Um, so it's, you know, should we leave, should we leave the truth alone or should, should we not? That is a, a classically universal yeah. theme concept. Like it's so powerful. It, it, did you have that in mind when you started the story or did that sort of emerge as you started telling it? It sort of emerged as I started telling it. There were two things that inspired the book. Uh, and one, you know, one was the beginning of the book and one was the end of the book. Um, the beginning of the book, I had something very similar happen to a friend of mine uh, with his father, where he witnessed his father um, and his life. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. And none of my friends knew that at the time. No one knew it at the time because um, this friend of mine had, had moved up from D.C. to Vermont because this happened to him. And none of us knew that. And later in life, he became a hardened criminal. Um, he was the first ever fugitive to be chased live on CNN news uh, and at him with being killed by the state police on live TV uh, after he had robbed a bank at gunpoint in, in Denver, Colorado and run down a cop uh, and, and killed the cop in pursuit and kidnapped people to um, drive him. Uh, and I didn't even know it was him at the time when I was watching this live. And then they showed the mugshot and I was like, oh my God, that that's my childhood friend. I, you know, I just saw this past summer when he was visiting. Um, so there was that, this, this thing. And then I learned subsequently what had happened, you know, that he had witnessed this horrific thing with his father. And I thought if he had not witnessed that, his life would have been entirely different. Um, even if his father had done what he'd done, it's still to witness it would have been, uh, you know, something that, that changed his life entirely. And then the other thing was the ending with this mansion burning um, up on this big estate that's reclusive and it's the town's most preeminent family and there's mysterious things going on. It was this, this was an estate that was basically across, literally across the tracks from where I, I grew up. Um, and one night a house and a barn burned down and we were close enough that we you know, walked across its road and down the field. Um, in our pajamas, along with a bunch of neighbors, was sort of out of Faulkner, <laughs> um, you know, to watch his house and barn burn and, and really not getting any details about it in the newspaper about what caused it. Uh, although there were always rumors um, that there was something um, intentful, you know, there was there was an intent behind this. It was it was we always believed there were there were rumors that it was you know, arson, that something had gone terribly wrong in this, in this family to cause someone to burn their own house down. Um, so those, those two things were there, this awful thing that happened to this kid, this mansion burning on this estate. And then as I, as I began to write it, I discovered the, the note myself, uh, which is how I write. Um, I don't, I seldom plot anything out or outline because I think for me anyway, it works for many people to do that. Many, many writers write great, fantastic novels that way. Um, but part of the magic for me comes in, in discovering it as I go. Um, and I discovered the note itself as I went. And then it was like, oh, what, is, what does this mean? And how, how do I get there? How do I get to this burning down of the mansion? 
um, based on the snow. Wow. <laughs> Those two stories coming together in, in sort of some cosmic alliance, I can see how you were inspired to, to do something with that. Uh, do you still first draft with a pencil notebook? I do. Yep. I write, um, I write all my first drafts with a pencil in notebooks. I've got boxes and boxes of notebooks going back 20 plus years now. Um, something about the physicality of it, um, you know, being able to scratch a line out or draw an arrow down or draw an arrow up or circle something or write a note to myself. Um, you know, just the, the tactile feel of the pencil on, on the paper and then being able to write wherever I want to write, you know, I like being outdoors a lot. So, you know, computer screens and, and the outdoors and sun don't get along all that well. Um, so I can take my notebook anywhere um, and write anywhere. So yeah, I still do it. Um, and then when I transpose that into, you know, onto my computer as I go, um, by the time I get it transposed, I've edited enough as I've gone that it's essentially almost a third draft. Um, Cause as I'm writing it in, I edit, you know, um, so it works for me. It works, you know, so far so good. Yeah, I, I love the process and, and writers are such junkies for process. I, I'm gonna ask you a follow up on that. Uh, are you are you transposing in sort of a daily batch or do you do the whole first draft and then you transpose the whole thing? Uh, I'll transpose as I go. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll get almost the entire novel done. Depends on how quickly it comes out and then, and then go uh, back and do it. Um, but more often than not, I'll, I'll start transposing as I go um, because you know, we all have days where we're, we're stuck a little bit. And so to work out, you know, a previous scene or previous chapter when I'm inspired to do that, to jumpstart my day or to jumpstart me in the middle of the day when, you know, the new stuff isn't coming as well as it might, um, I'll put the pencil down and, and rework something on, on the laptop. But for the most part, I, I, I get a, a good majority of the novel done before, um, before I, I transpose it all. Okay. And I think you are, uh, you're in Vermont and am yeah. I correct in, in saying that you, uh, you live near the house that inspired the lottery? Yeah. So, you know, another thing that inspires me, you know, I, I you know, recently been, you know, well, not recently, but for, most of my books have been called darkly poetic or rich in atmosphere or Gothic or, you know, these types of things, which I think setting should be a character in itself, or I like that. I prefer that as a reader and writer, um, whether it's, it's a city scape or, or rural, it doesn't matter. Um, but I like it when setting is character. Um, but I'm inspired by where I am because, you know, Shirley Jackson lived here. I'm 10 minutes from where Shirley Jackson lived in Bennington, Vermont. And yeah, the, te this, the story, the lottery was inspired when she, you know, strolled her toddler down into town from her house on Prospect Street. And um, by the time she was on the way back, she had the idea for the lottery. So the lottery itself was set, you know, in a town that's 10 minutes from me. You know, she fictionalized it, um, but the town that's 10 minutes away inspired her. Um, and, you know, she, she wrote her second novel here. She wrote, you know, uh, the haunting of Hill house here. 
In fact, I'm looking out a window right now where I can see the mountain where her second novel um, was inspired by the mysterious disappearance of a of a young woman in the woods, Mount Glastonbury. Um, I can I'm literally looking out my window. I can see it because it's not too foggy. Um, so that she lived here, I would go down and I would write when I'd get stuck on this novel, I would go down um, by her house. You know, her, her house is still there and it's, you know, there's a lot of green space around it. So I could sit with my notebook, another benefit and just sort of try to soak it in. And, you know, Donna Tart wrote The Secret History 10 Minutes From Here and it's about all this surrounding area. Um, you know, Robert Frost wrote, wrote here, you know, his old stone house is less than 10 minutes away from my house. So there's, there's a lot of cool stuff to draw from besides just the, the natural world, which in itself is, you know, darkly poetic, you know, nature and, and the mountains, um, rivers, they're very beautiful, but, you know, you, one misstep and they go from beautiful to very dangerous very fast. It's interesting that you that you say darkly poetic because I also feel like that's the best way to describe Ray Bradbury's style. And I know that you're a big fan of the Martian Chronicles. Can you talk a little bit about his influence on your style? Yeah, I love his style. You know, I mean, he, he, each one he has, you know, I think even stories in um, his other collections, October, uh, um, and and um, Fahrenheit, you know, he he has this very immediate way of writing and and this um, lyrical but dark and sometimes you know not sometimes but you know often humorous as well. This one doesn't mine doesn't have as doesn't have hardly any humor in this one. Although others of mine have sort of a dark humor, um, but that he you know he sets those stories on another planet but they're still very human stories they're about humans and humanity and greed and or um you know people that that are done with imperialism and you know see it as just a, you know another another marketing strategy for humans for you know and it's truer and truer today um so, but yeah, his, his writing style influences mine as well. And just that sheer storytelling ability, you know, you can be darkly poetic and, you know, play with language and all of those things, but you better not get in the way of the story either. And I think he balances that really well, along with, you know, numerous other, other writers too, of course, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have a, a lot in common as far as reading preferences. I'm, I'm a huge Bradbury fan. And I saw that you picked up a, a nice cheap cop, used copy of The Road at Martha's Used Books. Uh, yeah. Right? Cormac McCarthy is another one who I think falls into that darkly poetic and beautiful. Oh, uh, definitely. Right? Without a doubt. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, and, you know, you know, he's someone you can, you can, or I can, and millions probably, read, could read just for the prose alone, you know. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's another great one at that. Yeah, I think The Road is probably in my top five books of all time. It's 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 one one of the masterworks I go back and I reread, you know, periodically yeah. because it's just there's so many layers to it, you know. And I pick up something new every time. It's like listening to a great song and hearing something new on your you know thousandth listen. So uh, I can I can totally appreciate that too. It is yeah, The Road and the Blood Meridian is another one I go back to frequently, even just to read passages. 
you yeah. know, um, to just get inspired by, by prose alone. Yeah. 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 JD told me that, uh, you, that you have a new agent and I thought, Hmm, there must be an interesting story there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I have a great new agent with, uh, Shane Salerno at the story factory. Um, and you know, a few years ago, I, I, was at a place where I needed a new agent. Um, the agent I had was great, wonderful agent, um, boutique agency. Uh, but um, he was removing himself more and more from the from the daily grind of it all, um, justifiably so. And so, for myself, it made sense to me to sort of look elsewhere and start to cast that net again. And and um, Shane got back to me right away right, right away. Um, and we had great conversations and, you know, he's all out for his authors, just all out. Um, and always there and, and very strategic and always thinking and always, you know, six moves ahead of, of, you know, with strategy and, and, you know, helping to get the most for the, for his writers and, and also, um, the best, fit, uh, you know, author with, with publisher, you know, and he set me up with Blackstone and they're just fabulous. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a good, it's been really good. It's been great. Had you had Shane in mind from the beginning or were you sort of surveying the field and seeing which agents might be a good fit for you? Well, you know, what was interesting was that, um, you know, I'd, I'd seen Shane's name with what he did with Steve Hamilton several years back um, and, uh, and, you know, I knew we'd done that, but when I was looking, what I, you know, what I do, which a lot of people do is look at the authors you like that comp sort of with you um, and, or, or that you just admire and, and are sort of in the same vein at least. So, I, you know, I put together a list of authors that, you know, write in the same vein as I do or same genre um, and that I also really admire and who are also successful at it. And, um, you know, one was Lou Burney and one was Meg Gardner who had given a blurb for Lion Weight very generously. You know, one was Don Winslow, Steve Hamilton, um, Bill Beverly, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of writers and, so then I went to check to see, okay, well, who has what off, you know, what agent? <laughs> they all have the same agent and it was Shane. And so I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. So he was one of a number that I had approached that I sent out emails to um, saying, you know, I'm at this juncture, I wrote the silent girls in this successful crime series and these couple standalones and I'm doing this and I'm, here's where I'm at in my career. And I'm looking, you know, for an agent to, to help me with the next part of my career. And he got back to me within minutes of sending that email. So um, I, I did speak with some others, but he was, um, and many of them were gracious and, and you know, um, offered themselves as, as agents. And I, you know, appreciated that. But um, Shane was the best fit at, the, at that time, and and still now, you know, for for keeps. <laughs> yeah. 
what are uh what what are what's an example or what are some things that that Shane does for you that you're impressed by or you didn't expect or that he's just really good at god what isn't he good at <laughs> I, mean, I mean seriously he's really involved i mean if you, you look at you know the other writers that he represents um he's very very smart and patient and strategic and and knows how to time things well uh he won't rush something um you know even if even you know authors are a very neurotic bunch <laughs> we get very nervous or i do you know um and and he's very good at the psychology of it like just hold tight just hold tight we're working on stuff don't worry about it and you know then i can go and just keep keep writing um and not worry about it um and know that you know he and and the, the people with him at the story factory are constantly grinding away thinking about you know you look at the launch of of falling by tj newman this summer um and every you know every single writer he works with janet ivanovich he brought on and you know he works with that author and with that book that's coming out methodically patiently strategically in a very smart savvy way um that's customized at that particular book at that time with that author and that publisher and he does a, a lot of work himself you know he, he puts together uh you know the videos um that you see on twitter and and you know the trailers and, and you know has a very hands-on approach as well as so um I, he he does everything really well are you having any he, and he's there for it you know he 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 believes also that you know writers writers should get paid hmm. uh, and are you having conversations with him about your future projects like the creative directions uh book ideas is that kind of something you share with him as well um we haven't shared it that that much because we haven't really needed to you know he signed a, a we signed a two book deal and the next book's done and I'm working on, on, um, the next book after that. So, um, we haven't really needed to at this point. Yeah. You got your, you got your plate full for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place to be. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I write every single day. Like, like I assume most writers do. So. Yeah. Are, do you, uh, I know we touched a little bit upon the the first drafting and you like to go outdoors. Do you have a particular time of day that you like to write or a, a certain place that you prefer? Uh, I mean, I write as soon as, you know, sometimes I'll write before the kids are even up. And then once, once they're off to school or, you know, situated during the summer at a camp, sometimes they're, they're home um, during the summer. But uh, you know, I write first thing in the morning, uh, you know, after some, some coffee and breakfast and, uh, on and off all day until, you know, it's kid time again at whether it be, you know, three or four o'clock, depending on school or camps or, or even if they're home all day, you know, I'll still work, um, and mix it up. But outside, um, on my back patio, I like a lot, you know, I'm close to the refrigerator, I'm close to the snacks, um, but it's still peaceful and, and, you know, we're sort of got our own little spot. Um, and then there's places on the river and there's places I've gone up to Mount Glastonbury where, where that woman, dis many people have disappeared actually. Um, 
but that influenced you know Shirley Jackson's novel. Um, yeah, along the places along the river and in 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 the woods and uh, around the around the house uh, as well. Yeah, just not at Lambeau Field. <laughs> no, I never <laughs> never had that there. Maybe Gillette. Maybe I should try writing it. <laughs> I don't think Belichick would like that too much. No, probably not. Beth <laughs> is this guy. Is that Favre? What is that? <laughs> What the hell is Brett Favre doing? <laughs> oh, he's writing a book. <laughs> that would make sense. Out of here. <laughs> oh, hey man, it's been a uh, it's been a really pleasant conversation. I'd like to kind of wrap up with a, a question we ask most of our guests, uh, and I, I think this will be interesting for you because you've been doing this a long time. Um, you know, the publishing industry is, is it's undergoing a lot of change pretty quickly. Uh, what do you see on the horizon in general for the industry in say the next? Uh, three to five years? Um, I see only good things. You know, I see more and more writers being included as they should be more and more voices included as they should be, as they should have been for, you know, millennia. And uh, uh, as far as like technology and getting books out there and the ways people can read and the way people can find out about books that, um, you know, are, are the books that they want to read that they're seeking or, or introduce them to entirely new authors or entirely new genres. Um, you know, I put it this way, reading is not dead as, <laughs> as they keep saying it is rather, whether it's in the physical form of a, you know, hardcover or paperback um, or whether you read electronically. I mean, I, I see nothing uh, but good things on the horizon as far as publishing um and hopefully you know bringing in more writers and hopefully paying them better too i think you know social media has given uh a lot of writers a, a way to have leverage when they join together and and sort of um voice their concerns about um how things are done um business wise you know and and that combined with uh, agents being able to do their job, you know, to to get them to, uh, you know, pay pay writers better along the way or give them better royalty structures and things like that. I, I think it bodes well to readers, writers, uh, you know, and publishing in general. All right. So I think, as I mentioned in the interview, I did not uh, have time to read the book prior to the interview. Um, so I, I want to kick it to JD first, since you have read the book. Uh, the book, the interview, Eric, what do you think? Uh, well, in general, one of the things that I really liked about the book is the, the structure that he used, because the, the book is basically a book written by his lead character that's turned into the local police department in present day, but it's describing events that have taken place over, you know, the last 20, 30 years, you know, going all the way back to the eighties um, and some other events that happened later. Uh, but it's basically summed up in this manuscript and it's given to the police and, and they're basically saying they're, they're providing to the, the general public and they're, they're basically telling everybody, this is what we received. Here's the story. Uh, and then he bounces around in time with that. And it's just a, a really cool twist on, you know, the then and now type storytelling. Um, that I, I really enjoyed. Um, 
and also the the book, you know, big portions of it are set back in the eighties, which which I liked a lot too. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot more of that. I think the eighties, I, I guess, they're the new seventies, which you know used to be the sixties and fifties, but everybody's kind of moved on to the eighties. Uh, I feel the nineties are going to be coming up very very shortly. But you know, it's one of those one of those times. Like everybody just really seems to like writing in there. Um, for me personally, like when I tell a story in the eighties, it's all about isolation. You know, if you're writing something scary, if you're writing a thriller, or you're writing a horror story, um, it's much easier and much more fun to do if you can take away cell phones and take away social media. <laughs> And you could take away all these things that allow us to stay, you know, constantly connected to everybody. Um, I'm writing a book right now in present day. And, you know, one of the first things that came into my head is, okay, how can I take away their cell phones? You know, I I need to get rid of this. You know, like it's just it's so much more fun to to write, you know, good, scary stuff, you know, set back in the day. So that that was good, too. But um, a fantastic book. Yeah, I I just I I wanted to add on to that because I, I, I have a feeling that it might stop with the 80s for the exact reasons you've mentioned. Because in the 90s, we do start getting more interconnected. And I feel like the 80s could be the last decade where the natural setting is disconnected. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if anything, I think it's going to play out a lot longer than it has with with previous decades, you know, moving on to the next one. I think we're going to get stuck there for a little while. You're you're just trying to bait me into a debate about that. (laughs) 80s 80s versus 90s. No, I can see what you're saying, though. But uh, even though I could see some 90s stuff. Anyway, that's beside the point. I want to talk about how he handwrites his first draft. <laughs> like, I mean, that is... I don't know. I envy anyone who can do that because... Not that I can't do it. I just don't know if I have the patience. Plus, my handwriting is terrible to the point where I just think I would get frustrated trying to go back and t- type the stuff up. But, you know, like, <clears throat> the more I've thought about it, I've because I've definitely thought about that would suck to have to put all that on the computer but and I think this came up on the show a couple weeks ago but then he mentioned it you're kind of editing as you're doing that so you're kind of doing another draft it's not like you're just taking exactly what you hand wrote and putting that word for word back onto the computer um so I don't know I I think uh I or maybe it was Joanna that was talking about that recently I think I think I heard that on her podcast but uh but either way, I don't know. That's got me really itching to maybe do a uh, a short story that way or something to try it. Yeah, you've said what. Uh, That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. And, and I, what I might do is make it like a treat. Like if uh, like I can take my notebook and like a coffee and like go out in the woods or you know make it like a special occasion and just do a short story. It might be a fun way to experiment with it. Um, I, one of the things I. I I think it's because you're using a different method. Your voice is different. We've talked about this a little bit. I've got a, an old Royal typewriter that my mom bought me. That's you know way older than I am. That's sitting in my office, and I'm working on a novel on that. And I try to type one page a day. Um, so I just go over there and I just pound out one page on on that actual keyboard. And my voice is very different on that on that typewriter than it is on my computer. Um, and it's also very different from from dictating. You know, we talked to Kevin J. Anderson about that last week. Um, I, for me personally, I need to see the words on on the page in front of me. Like I need to see how they're going to look when they're actually in a book like that's for some reason that my brain is just accustomed to seeing them that way for editing and things like that that's you know that that's what works for me um handwriting though i think is is no different i think your voice is going to be very different if you handwrite something uh the edits are going to end up being a little bit different um and there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't try to, to mix it up because for all you know that might be your your chosen method and you just haven't tried it yet yeah, I feel specifically like my voice, I don't feel is that much different when I dictate versus when I type. I feel like it comes out pretty much the same. Um, but I do kind of wonder if it would be different if I hand wrote. But more than that, I really, the editing process, I feel I feel like if I edited handwritten, which I could do that with a type manuscript, like I could print it out and then 
you know do the edits that way which is not something that i typically do uh but i don't know i feel like that part of the process would be would be really really interesting um something else he mentioned too that i'll bring up uh is and and this is something that i think i mean you hear but i think that kind of gets lost on authors sometimes but i love when he talked about how the setting should be a character i think that that is uh that and and i and i started really thinking about that and i you think specifically here it goes i'm gonna do it this time jd think of stephen king you know i mean his settings are characters i mean you know whether the the obvious example you could take is you know the shining but i mean you can see it in every book from that to salem's lot to it to 11 like i mean it's he's really really good at making the saying into a character and i think that's something that um that authors tend to forget and something that you should really think about when you're writing your story. Yeah, I think it, it, you, you need to bring it a, a, to life. You know, like if you think of Riley Sager's latest book, you know, the car in that story is a character. You know, it's, it's very much part of that story. You know, just like the, the music that they're listening to and all, all the little things that he threw in there to make it part of that. Um, it's, it's important. Otherwise, it just kind of falls by the wayside. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Whether it's a house, a car, whether it's the, the yard, the city, all of those things are extremely important. Yeah, I just watched a very Riley Sager-esque uh, movie on Netflix that, that pertains to this. It's called The Guilty with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. And the entire movie takes place inside of a 911 uh, phone bank. The whole, the whole movie. And, and, that becomes, and that setting is a character. And it's that sort of, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's like what Riley does because it's very specific, but it's this whole idea of, of utilizing the environment as part of the storytelling mechanism. Cool. Anything else on uh, Eric? But he was a fun guy to talk to. Very, very down to earth. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys. If you run into him at a conference, definitely pull him aside and, and chat him up. Um, he'll he'll fill you in on his his past you know career and, and where he's going, and you know he can help you avoid a lot of those hurdles that we we all tend to run into as we're we're trying to feel our way through this place. Well, cool. So JD, who's next? Next week, we've got MJ Preston. He's a horror author out of Canada. Um, a couple books out there. Um, it, it should be interesting. Excellent. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free Revision Masterclass, where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.